Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us just another highly, highly accomplished guy that comes out of the world of M&A, you know, high finance. And I use that term compared to anything that I've ever done. Very successful and then pivoted to the world of multifamily where he has crushed that in the past. I'm going to say a decade and a half. I might stand to be corrected. We'll find out in a moment. Uh, He is the co-founder and senior managing director at Pathfinder Partners in San Diego. And he is Mitch Siegler. Mitch, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much, Roger. Good to be with you. You got it. I hope that it hasn't been as hot uh, down there, the southern end of the state, as it has been up here. It's been the hottest weather ever in the Bay Area, the local paper said this morning. The ever part, I don't know how they quantify that. But nonetheless, Mitch, you're in San Diego. I think you went to college down there, judging by your profile. Are are you a native Californian or are you uh, one of the hordes that moved out at some point in time or born and raised? Or Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a recent immigrant to the great state of California. I came here uh, 35, 37 years ago out of college. Um, I grew up in the Midwest and... I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, the show me state. I went to the state university, went to work for Anheuser-Busch out of college. They moved me out to California where I ran a finance and operations group and did corporate development and went to business school in LA at Pepperdine and moved down to San Diego in uh, 1987 when there were still dinosaurs here, but seen a lot of growth. It was a small town back then, for sure. And and you know what? Look, I claim to be from the Midwest, but you know, I don't, I'm not in the Midwest compared to you. I'm from Cleveland, but KC is the Midwest. Okay. Well, you know, our, our timelines are not too far apart. Uh, I came out here after college and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And so what did you do after the Anheuser-Busch deal? And, and kind of what did you do business pre-real estate? So I I, uh, joined after business school, a boutique merger and acquisition advisory business that was also launching a venture capital fund started by a former Goldman Sachs guy who'd come out here and was backed by a bunch of San Diego uh, luminaries, the kind of the old guard, uh, cobbled together some capital and wanted to create some local capital to finance a burgeoning technology sector, primarily communications, spin-outs from the Qualcomm uh, platform and life sciences, which came out of a company called Hybertech, now part of Lilly. And they saw all the capital coming out of the Bay Area and companies really not being able to grow to a large size. So we backed a number of companies and were part of the San Diego uh, high-tech ecosystem as it was taking off in the late 80s, early 90s. So I did that for a number of years. And then I started and ran a series of businesses. I I started doing business in the uh, what was then the former Soviet Union, exporting American consumer products, and we began importing products. And we had a 
wholesale distribution business and a catalog internet business that we launched in 1994, uh, the same year Yahoo was founded. So I, I saw a lot in those years. And then in uh, 2005, I was with a, a good friend who was also my corporate attorney. And he was a real estate attorney, ran the real estate department for San Diego's oldest and largest uh, law firm. And we were commiserating about what we saw happening in the residential and commercial real estate environment. And uh, we felt that there was going to be a bit of a, a crack up in, in those markets and the banks would be the new owners of real estate. And that was the impetus for us to uh, start Pathfinder in 2006, which we initially did with some of our own capital, friends and family fund that we raised a year later. We had a uh, capital partner relationship with a hedge fund out of Greenwich, and we've really had an incredible run. Got it. So to go back a quick second, uh, when you when you were working with that VC firm, uh, what did you do? You know, I started as a young associate. I was uh, I was made a partner after a few years. We we did both uh, M and A advisory for emerging. Uh, companies and and there were technology companies and there were consumer based businesses and we also had a couple of funds when I was with the firm that we raised and deployed in a variety of businesses all San Diego based businesses life sciences uh, semiconductor related companies specialty retailers a variety of of companies and we were at the right place at the right time and had an incredible network and it was. Uh, it was successful for our investors and, and us, and it was very successful in terms of incubating and launching a number of businesses in the San Diego community. San Diego today is the, I think, the third largest center of life sciences and, and healthcare and medical device businesses in the country. Uh, it's, a, it's a strong sector for things like communications, uh, green tech. A variety of things. So as, as you commented or, earlier, it was a sleepy town when I came here, when, when we came to California, you and I, but um, it's really had an incredible growth and it's an amazing place to live. Yeah, I get it. Uh, no, nobody's saying Sandy, the San Diego weather you can't deal with. And just out of curiosity, sense of scale is what kind of money did you guys raise for that VC fund or might might have been different uh, tranches, et cetera? Our, our, our first fund was targeted at $10 million in, in 1987. If you remember October 19th, 1987, the stock market crashed and lost 25% of its value in a day. And some of those commitments dried up. And I think we closed on you know, we closed right away on just shy of $9 million. I think the next fund was 20 or 25 a year or two later. Um, so very, very small by today's standards, but, you know, respectable uh, first funds for sure. Uh, back in the day, you kind of have to multiply everything from the 80s to by three, four, five times to get to $2,022. Yeah, you know, at least. Um, and, and then Mitch, when you said that you ran businesses and you ran export import businesses, uh, and there were a, a sequence of them, were, were you a guy that was like, uh, like a corporate CEO guy that was brought in or, or, or were these businesses no, that you started or what? I you started them. I started them. They were, they were the antithesis of, of blue chip corporate CEO kinds of things that was, uh, um, 
It was me with some help from my wife, Elizabeth. Uh, our first warehouse was the garage attached to our single family home. Um, we, we really bootstrapped it and, and, uh, you know, I've seen businesses that, that take a lot of capital and I've seen businesses that have had very little capital and the businesses that, that I started were in the latter category. And we kind of modeled Pathfinder on that a little bit also, right? We, we wanted to build a business that uh, didn't have a lot of employees, that didn't have a lot of uh, capital requirements from the standpoint of, of inventory and accounts receivable. We outsource certain key functions and, and, and to this day continue to outsource things like property management. You know, in the early days, we, we had to sign pretty deep personal loan guarantees on a lot of our transactions. But we were fortunately able to raise equity capital from the very beginning through our relationships and leverage that capital with co-invest with uh, institutional equity partners in some cases, uh, uh, obtain usually reasonable uh, levels of leverage. That wasn't the case in the early years. In 2007, 8, 9, you know, there really wasn't much uh, debt capital to be had um, in the wake of the great financial crisis. And some of the investments we made during that time period, we did all equity. Uh, with no debt. But today, especially with our focus on multifamily, debt capital availability is quite good. Got it. You know what? I've heard a term recently and, and um, I should know the answer to this, but I don't. And so I'm going to I'm going to reveal my my uh, ignorance and ask the question. What is a co-invest fund? In the early years for us, our first fund was about three and a half million dollars. And we took that capital primarily, and we teamed up with a large institutional investor, large family office, others. And we said, we found this incredible opportunity, this incredible property to buy from a bank. That was the environment back in those days. And we have 10% of the required equity capital. If you would like to put up the other 90% of the equity capital, uh, and we'll get a 50% bank loan, on situations where we could do that, we'll do this thing together. And there's other elements to the structure, but that's the high level. So our three and a half million dollars in that case of equity acted like $70 million in my 90-10 example. And with a 50% leverage, uh, it could, it could, uh, acquire, if you will, $140 million property portfolio. There are people that I've seen raise on the other end from where you are because you're a you're a GP, you're an operator, but I've seen funds like that their LPs are limited partners that put together a co-invest fund in a fifty thousand feet, and I don't know if I'm correct or not. My understanding was that they get the same structure, the same treatment as the GP, so they don't they don't have to pay certain fees. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Am I completely out to lunch here? You, you you are going another level down the down the food chain. So I am. that's that's the situation where let's say a small operator who is who is dependent on an institutional capital partner, and we've backed people like this over the years with our capital. We don't so much today, but we have. Those guys maybe when they're just starting out, 
they don't really have much in the way of net worth or their own capital. They don't have a fund. Uh, they probably don't even have much experience syndicating uh, transactions. And they find people who say, okay, we'll back you. Um, we don't want to be a pure limited partner for those economics. We want something a little bit uh, extra. And maybe we don't pay a fee or we pay a reduced fee, or maybe we get a more generous to us as the limiteds split of the profits. And you can use our capital as though it's your own for GP uh, co-invest requirements that your institutional partner may have, may impose on you. Sometimes it's 50-50, sometimes it's 90-10, sometimes it's 95-5, just depends on, on the capital source and it depends on the sponsor. Got it. Thank you for your patience and explaining. So, you know, in 06, uh, you hooked up with the attorney of that business and that ran the real estate. Lauren is his name, Lauren Polger, and I co-founded the company. All right, Lauren. And why did you guys choose multifamily as an asset class? Well, it, it was, it was, Roger, it was a long and winding road. So when we started off, we bought all real estate food groups. We bought everything under the sun that we could from banks. So we bought retail centers and partially built condo projects and a hotel and office buildings and developable lots and partially sold subdivisions and you name it, we bought it. Um, and we worked our way through these properties through the various cycles. So that first cycle with our first fund was 2007. We raised the fund. We didn't really call and begin deploying the capital for six to 12 months. We were waiting for pricing to sort of settle out. There was a bid ask gap at the time. We raised another fund in 2009. There was still a lot of dislocation, but the market you know, wasn't in this free fall like it was in 2007 and eight. We still had a lot of great opportunities to buy all types of properties from financial institutions and work these things out and restructure them and infuse new capital and add value to them, finish the construction in a number of cases. And we raised a series of funds during that during that period, we raised a third fund in 2011 and a fourth fund in 2012. And you know, we've raised a dozen or, or more funds during our during our uh, history so far the past 16 years. But we began by buying really anything we could at attractive pricing from distressed sellers. And that first phase, I would call the deep distress phase. The second phase was more of a of a extreme value add phase where we transformed properties. And that morphed into uh, what we did for many years, which was which was va- adding value to properties where the original uh, developer ran out of capital or the bank took the project back or other things happened. And as the markets healed in the in the mid 2010s, in this 2015, 16, 17 period of time, we, through our analysis, determined that the projects that required the most work and, and created the most brain damage and should have had the highest risk-adjusted returns. So think uh, building and selling detached single-family homes. Think finishing construction on a on a condominium project and then selling through the units one at a time. Think owning, renovating, and and uh, operating a hotel. These types of things should have superior returns to a bread and butter down the fairway multifamily uh, project. 
and they didn't. Uh, as a group, they didn't. We seemed to perform best on the multifamily, and when we would beat our heads against the wall on these other things, uh, we often didn't get paid for the time and risk and and additional aggravation. So, you know, even a even a blind squirrel can find an acorn once in a while, and and that led us to the conclusion that um, either multifamily uh, is a better fit for our skills and experience, or um, it's less difficult. But if you're not getting the risk premium for things that should be riskier, you shouldn't do it. If it hurts, don't do it. So we, six, seven, eight years ago, really began to focus on multifamily. Five plus years ago, we uh, sold through everything else and uh, completely uh, laser focused the portfolio on multifamily. And we've evolved on our on our last four or five funds. They've been pure multifamily funds. Uh, we've gone from doing extreme value add and taking somebody's unloved property and infusing capital and renovating the kitchens and bathrooms and adding amenities and and boosting the rents to uh, what we do more of today, which is more of a steady eddy income generating uh, multifamily vehicle where we've um, where we focused on a certain vintage and type of property. And we could talk more about that in a handful of markets that we know very, very well. So we think that gives us sourcing advantages, that gives us management advantages, that lets us see the market on a very extreme level from, from the ground up. And uh, it's just a great space for a lot of reasons. You know, I'm going to uh, make an observation and then I'm going to ask a question that coming out of the background that you came out of, and by the way, the fact what what I'm really getting from your story is that you're you're a hustler, man. You started all these businesses out of your house and and from the ground, you know, out of thin air. And it's in businesses plural, uh, which means you know, this guy's you've got some mental shelf space. At least you had at the time. I mean, that that takes huge uh, cojones, and and you're you're a scrappy guy, which is fantastic. And along those lines, what's so impressive is that, and, and I'm just, I guess I'm projecting here, but what's so impressive is that I'm not hearing that you or Lorne were, you know, like were construction guys by any stretch of the imagination or or, or even came out of real estate. You, you don't have backgrounds or education, but yet you guys, you know, got in, you know, like you said, hotels and, and all kinds of, you know, office buildings and all kinds of different assets. I'm like, how on earth did you pull all of that, all of that off? Because you didn't have experience prior to doing that, operating them, at least in terms of what you revealed so far. I'm like, that is, you guys must be like just amazingly smart. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Roger. Um, we're scrappy. We're hard workers. We know enough to know what we don't know. And we know how to go out and get help. There's a couple of myths about being an entrepreneur, in my opinion, that they're, we're not all cut from the same cloth. But, you know, we started Pathfinder out of my house also. And we used Lauren's law firm conference room when we needed to, to hold meetings. So that was driven by a desire to keep overhead low. And if you keep overhead low, you have more runway, which gives you more time to fumble and make mistakes and find your way. So what we started out doing, our first deals at Pathfinder were, uh, you remember how I told you that 
We did not earn a sufficient risk premium from the retail centers and the office buildings and the other stuff to justify doing it in favor of multifamily. Well, the first deals we did, I can tell you for sure we did not earn a risk, a sufficient risk premium for those. We bought syndicated, we bought $100,000 pieces of syndicated loans from a bankrupt hard money lender in Las Vegas, secured by uh, fractured condominium projects in Florida that blew up in this 2006, seven, eight timeframe. And we were, we were acquiring these at discounts one at a time using a title company and cobbling together enough of an interest to be able to uh, take control of the projects and drive the business plan. So that was kind of all that was there to be had in 2006, early 2007, when the banks were still a little bit in denial and they didn't recognize that they had a bunch of problem assets that they would ultimately need to sell. That didn't come for another year or two. That's how we started. So we started with, um, you know, on a shoestring, using our own capital, putting these things together. We had a capital partner that backed us uh, side by side. And on the strength of that, we were able to raise a small friends and family fund that we then levered with additional co-invest dollars to have success that rolled us into uh, through these relationships that we had and the new ones that we created uh, in the early years after the downturn to a series of funds that you know allowed us to buy and sell more than a billion dollars of property um, to date. Wow. I'm just, you know, I've been listening to this. Well, not listening. I mean, there's this, there's this retail strip mall guy that's very active on Twitter. He calls himself, um, strip mall guy. <laughs> and anyway, he, tw- he tweets every day and he, he basically has, uh, basically bought and repositioned strip centers and repositioned isn't really the right word, but he's done heavy value add that you're talking about. He goes in and maybe they're 70% vacant or there's something wrong or in, in, you know, the, he gets them at a discount and he fixes them up and sells them in two to three years. So that's basically his model. He's been doing it since 2006, uh, was based out of the Bay Area for his first, you know, 16 years or so of doing it. He's younger than you and me. He's in his early 40s. And uh, what he says is that he says retail is it's a very complicated business. And so I, when I see that, I tend to heed it. In my younger years, I would have said, oh, no, I could figure it out. And that was my approach to everything. And, you know, back then you do because you're young and you don't have a lot to lose at this point. I don't have the stomach for that stuff. But my point is like, he's, that's just one category. You guys, you did hotels, you did office, you did retail. How do, how do you figure out how to just reposition and retenant and do the value add? And I, you know, inevitably you guys, you know, identify partners to to do these things. I get all that operators, perhaps, but even then, you still kind of have to know what you're doing in order to pick the right people. So maybe you just maybe you just had intrinsic talent for doing this stuff. No, no, it's um, having the answers. I, one of my learnings in business is that having the answers is not really where you find the holy grail because the problems sometimes resemble the prior problems, but not always the situation changes. It's really knowing the questions to ask and figuring out what the questions are to ask and staying with it until you learn enough to have a confidence level that, you know, you're on the right track. So 
whenever we made an investment, we tried to do so with a deep margin of safety. We tried to understand what could get us into trouble and how to avoid that. And if we thought the risk was operator, our lack of expertise in uh, operating a retail center or an office building or a hotel, well, we brought in an operating partner that had that expertise. If we thought the risk was time and we think we have a 12 to 18 month business plan to sell through these these partially completed condominiums, we tried to get the price such or arrange for other things to give us additional runway, this debt structure, whatever it is, that gave us enough of a time window so we wouldn't hit the wall and uh, not be able to complete the business plan because we ran out of time. So usually there's a weak link in the chain or maybe several. How do you shore up those weak links? One thing that we did about five years ago as a company is we we brought on board uh, a very senior construction guy who serves as our director of construction. And he can look through all of our contractor bids and he can look through all the schedules and he can be boots on the ground at key moments during the project and try to help us stay out of trouble in some of those areas. So that potentially, you know, that's potentially a weak link in the chain. You can bleed cash, you can bleed time, you can have schedule overruns, the market can change on you during this, during these, these changes. And anything you can do to mitigate that, we, we believe, and we, we should have learned long ago, uh, is probably money well spent. We have a, a strong asset management team. We don't manage our, our properties directly. We have hired outside third party property managers with, deep expertise in the markets that we're in. But we have an asset management team that sets a strategy and oversees the property managers and shows up at at the properties in these markets very regularly and, and reviews budgets and reviews scope of work for improvements and all that stuff. Don't have to do that. It's a big cost. Many people don't do things like that. We find that it, it provides a sufficient return to justify the investment. So a lot of this stuff has evolved. Um, Lauren and I were doing a lot of this stuff ourselves at the beginning. And obviously, you know, we did some things really well and we did some things very poorly and everything in between. And as you grow and you gain expertise and, and knowledge, you have the ability to invest in some of these other areas and be stronger in more, in more ways. Got it. I know you did mostly fund structures. Uh, you've, you said you've had over a dozen uh, funds. And at any point along the way, starting out or what have you, did you ever lose all your money in a, in a given deal? No, we, we are big. We had a couple of properties in our first fund. That was the $3.5 million fund where we lost, oh, a hundred or $200,000 in an investment or two. And, and we have an extensive track record. We have, we have uh, had round trip realizations on more than a hundred uh, properties in our history. And I think when, when we get into deep diligence discussions with sophisticated investors and they ask to see our track record, you know, these are, these are the two that we point to. They're, they're relatively small. Um, and they were early. We had one more that was a student housing investment that we did in partnership with a, a student housing expert. And we had a 
we had a million and a half or two, $2 million loss on that one. But we, on the other, you know, 97 or 100 plus, we have uh, earned our target returns in the most case, exceeded them in quite a few cases, and fallen a little bit short in a few cases. But we have outperformed as a group a large sample size over a very, very long period of time with uh, uh, superior risk-adjusted returns that I think would put us in the in the top tier of most of our peers at the various vintages of our funds over the years. But we believe strongly in portfolio construction. I think that's the single most important thing you can do to determine outcome. And the people who do well over long periods of time are, are experts at it. And the people that fall short usually either bet the house on a deal that took up too much of the capital in a fund or had excessive concentration risk in a in a product type or geography or violated some other rule of diversification. And we've been very, very intentional. So when you when you do things in a fund structure, first of all, you have the inherent benefit of providing diversification to an investor that he simply or she doesn't get when they when they choose to do a one-off investment in this or that property. So when we build a fund, we can do six, eight, 10, 12 properties in that fund. We can put them into three, four, five different geographical markets that will balance each other out. If something goes wrong in Phoenix, my properties in Seattle, Portland, and and uh, Denver are probably going to balance that out, not to pick on Phoenix, just an example. If we have a, a portfolio of 10 multifamily properties and some are 70s and 80s vintage and some are 2000 and 2010 vintage, well, we've got some, we've got some vintage diversification because we're probably not going to need to put uh, new roofs on all 10 properties next Tuesday. So there's a hundred things that you can do. We also put our debt on at the property level, uh, not at the fund level, and there's no cross-collateralization. So one bad apple cannot sink the barrel. So we've created uh, a bunch of rules, a bunch of safeguards and guardrails that we believe protect principle, provide that margin of safety, add diversification, and uh, generate alpha in the sense that we learn things from this property that we can transplant over to that property. and. Uh, we hope that by focusing on an asset class and focusing on half a dozen markets, which is what we do today, this can all be pretty accretive for our investors. Okay. So you had alluded to uh, vintage in terms of what you're doing today and maybe uh, provide some color on that, bringing us up to speed. So today, our, our primary focus, we still have some assets in some funds that we raised a few years ago, one that we raised during the pandemic that's an opportunity fund. But most of our focus today is on something called Pathfinder Partners Income Fund, which is a, a vehicle we launched from zero in January of 2020, so about two and a half years ago. Um, we had been getting feedback from our investors for many, many years saying, you guys do an amazing job of finding these incredible value-add opportunities, unloved properties that somebody else owns that they failed to put capital into that you can invest in and transform. And then you do that. And three to five years later, and we understand it's in a fund structure, you have to have liquidity, you sell it. And wouldn't it be great if you could figure out how to keep those properties because they're incredible assets and 
um, it's a shame to have to sell them. So we created uh, a mechanism, kind of acts like a 1031 exchange vehicle, it isn't, uh, whereby an investor in a legacy Pathfinder fund, in uh, an investor in Pathfinder 5 or 7 or whatever, can receive from us notification that we're going to sell a property in that fund. And they have a choice. They can take a check, pay taxes on it, or they can choose to roll that property over into uh, the income fund in the case of a transaction involving a legacy fund and the income fund. And we determine the value based on a third-party appraisal. We avoid transaction costs because it's an internal transaction. The savings from that are shared between the selling fund and the income fund. Uh, the income fund is able to uh, put on very, very attractive long-term fixed-rate financing. Our uh, we currently have a dozen properties, about 1,300 units in the income fund. They're in five different cities. Um, we're continuing to take in new capital each quarter. We're continuing to grow the fund. It's an it's an open-ended fund for, for the next several years. We expect to continue to acquire properties. The ultimate exit is through a sale of the individual properties or... Uh, conversion of that fund into a REIT structure or placing a REIT on top of that fund. A lot of ways we can go. Selling off blocks of properties market by market. Um, lots of potential exits. Uh, but the, the properties are financed today with seven to 10 year fixed rate debt at a weighted average rate of about three and a half percent, which is an incredible asset uh, when you look at it through the prism of today's interest rate environment. The rent, the, the occupancy rates on these properties are 95, 96, 97%. The rent growth in, in our markets and at our properties in the last 12 months has been mid-teens, uh, completely unsustainable. We don't expect that to continue, but it's been extraordinary rent growth. And the value of that portfolio is up about 50% from when it, where it started two and a half years ago. So we revaluate each quarter. The the fund and all of our funds are fully audited by a national firm. We believe that's best practices too. We communicate very, very aggressively and robustly with our investors. We think that's best practices and, and we don't see that nearly often enough in other funds and investments that we participate in as investors. That income fund we think plays to the long-term supply demand imbalance in the multifamily space. There's simply not enough housing uh, in the markets that we're in. And, and nationally, uh, there's a real shortage of affordable housing for working class people. Uh, roughly 50% of Americans rent. And each year in markets like San Diego or San Francisco, where, where you and I uh, reside, we undersupply housing by a very large extent. And that's a trend that's been continuing for decades. Uh, it didn't happen just this year or, or last couple of years. It's been going on for 25, 35 years. And that issue is spreading, not to, not to get political here, but it's more pronounced in the deep blue cities and in the deep blue states. It's a, it's a real problem in Seattle. It's a real problem in Portland. It's something of a problem and growing in Denver. Uh, it's less of a problem in Phoenix, but but there's not enough housing. And if you look at what's been built for rental housing the last decade, uh, 80% of it or thereabouts is Class A. 
It's the most expensive, the luxury product with the, with the fancy amenities in the best areas and so forth. What's needed, the hole in the market, is Class B workforce housing. You can't build that. You're not, people are not building projects like that because it's so difficult to get entitlements. There's so much resistance on environmental grounds, on parking grounds, on, on a host of other grounds to a new project. The only thing that really makes sense is to, is to build the very, very best property that you can. So it's all Class A and it's unaffordable. Our properties tend to be 30 to 40% less in monthly rent than a Class A property. Uh, that used to have some drawbacks that are less pronounced today. One of those drawbacks was those properties were in the suburbs and they were a 30 minute commute from major job centers in this new work from home or hybrid environment. That's less of an issue. So it's a pretty good trade off for people to save a third on their rent and, uh, and have to commute a half hour because they're only commuting, you know, a day or two a week if they're commuting at all. Okay. So are you saying that the, the assets you're acquiring these days, using that term loosely, so are, is Class B work for, workforce housing stuff? Class B workforce housing in suburban areas in six rapidly growing Western cities. We're in Seattle, Portland, Sacramento, San Diego, Phoenix, and Denver. And we've invested in 20 cities during our history, but we focused, just like we focused all real estate classes down to multifamily, we focused all geographies down to those six cities because we have learned some things about the market dynamics in those cities that we believe provide us with uh, competitive advantages. Okay. And in vintage is 80s, 90s? 80s, 90s. We've got some newer properties. We've got a couple older properties, but generally it's kind of 1980 to 2000. That's the sweet spot. So you guys are uh, fantastically focused, uh, which is fantastic. In the last three, five years, whatever you want to call it, Mitch, there's been cap rate compression like crazy all the way down to C-class. I guess, how are you, you know, how, how has that, you know, changed the playing for you on the acquisition side over the last couple of few years? Well, it, it's definitely harder. It's definitely harder to, to see um, those opportunities. You know, op- opportunity it does knock on your door, but it's not very often in my experience that it comes knocking at your door. It's out there. You have to learn how to recognize it. So sometimes for us, opportunity is seeing something that others don't see. It's a deal that's being marketed by a brokerage firm with a nominally very, very low cap rate that has some elements to it that we see and believe can lead it to be a fundamentally uh, we can turn it into into a higher cap rate opportunity by transforming the rent rule, adding additional units, um, building some garages, adding a, a dog park, uh, turning turning units that are uh, that have a pony wall into studio units. We see things sometimes that others don't see. Cap rate compression is is certainly challenging. We've benefited from it in the value of our portfolio and it makes it more challenging to uh deploy capital in new opportunities but you know from an underwriting perspective we have always underwritten with that same margin of safety that we were talking about a few minutes ago um we'll buy at a cap rate of x and we'll assume on the going outside uh we're going to be 
you know, a seller at a cap rate that's 100 or 150 basis points higher. And we've done that for more than 15 years. So the market has changed and cap rates have changed, changed, but we've always had the humility to say that it's not going to be as good when we sell as it is when we buy. So we've got some work to do to transform that asset and improve its P&L. And uh, we need to prepare that it's going to be a less attractive selling environment on the other side. Hasn't always worked out you know, that way. We've gotten lucky as cap rates have declined. That's been a, a bonus for us. But uh, we still assume if we buy something tomorrow that um, it's going to be tougher five, seven, 10 years from now when we turn around and sell it. To go back just a quick sec, just to make sure I understood, is the income fund is is basically comprised of assets that you've owned in other funds that you just want, that's, that's worth keeping uh, because they're just great cash flowing properties and in great areas, et cetera. That's partially correct. So the income fund today is comprised about half of properties that we've contributed from other funds and half from comp- from properties that we've gone out into the market and acquired. So it's both of those things and we have the ability to do both of those things. So it's a it's an open-ended vehicle that still has a pipeline, if you will, that you could look at of half a dozen or so other properties that we continue to own in other legacy Pathfinder funds that should market conditions be such that it makes sense for us to sell those and for the income fund to buy them, that's something that could happen. But as the income fund obtains new capital, it will deploy that capital, whether it's in Pathfinder owned properties or uh, third party market market deals. So with a new acquisition, what determines whether a property you're acquiring goes into the income fund versus a, a, a another fund that you have that you're concurrently raising money for and putting properties into? So today, and since we launched the income fund two and a half years ago, we haven't had that other uh, fund oh, okay. that, that could have been a competitive uh, situation. So tip, typically, I mentioned that we raised a fund during the pandemic. That was an opportunity fund to take advantage of the distress brought about by the pandemic uh, to the extent that hit the multifamily sector. And the multifamily sector is such a healthy sector, there really wasn't very much distress. But we did find three properties in the Seattle and Portland areas that struggled with lease up, that had maturing loans, that had uh, uh, owners that were fatigued or under financial duress, some set of circumstances that caused them to be sellers. And we bought these properties when they were, you know, 50, 60, 70% occupied in markets that are 90, 95% occupancy markets at attractive prices. And those reside in Pathfinder Opportunity Fund 8. But other than that, we haven't raised an opportunity fund in in several years and and don't have any plans to today uh, in the near future. So anything um, that comes across the transom that we're looking at is uh, for the income fund today. So it's not having to compete with anything else. And if we had an opportunity fund and that, that fund that I just mentioned was targeting uh, high teens or 20% internal rate of return, the income fund is targeting uh, low teens internal rate of return, 10% or better, uh, 13% or better average annual return. They're, they're just different risk profiles, different return targets, and it's going to fall in one bucket or it's going to fall in the other. 
Last week, uh, a video uh, found its way into my inbox. That's because I actually requested it to be. Anyway, um, and, and what it was saying is that uh, in Houston, in Phoenix, and there were other markets uh, that I can't remember. It doesn't really matter. But the gist was this, is that uh, there are markets in the country uh, where there has been overbuilding uh, and there's actually been negative absorption in the last, I want to say six months. It might not, it might not have been six months, might have been three months. I don't remember. But the point is that there has been that, that this, you know, this trajectory that multifamily has been on for the last uh, decade, not, not necessarily is going to stop, but it's going to hiccup, uh, just because, you know, there, there's some areas where there's just, uh, huge amounts of overbuilding and areas where it's easy to build. And like you said, you were talking about Phoenix, Houston, and some other markets. What's your take on that? My take on that, Roger, is, uh, channeling Mark Twain. The news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> I, I think. Yes, it's possible that for a six-month period of time or maybe even a seven-month period of time in a city here or there, we can find an example of overbuilding or negative absorption. Or, But we are undersupplying housing in this country. Year in, year out, uh, we're millions of units below where we ought to be. There's a lot of reasons for that. None of them really good or healthy for the communities that are impacted. But it's not going to change. In, in California, you know, it has become fashionable for decades for people to oppose projects in their neighborhood on the grounds that they're impacting some obscure creature or that there's going to be more pressure on parking or that it's going to add to the traffic. Uh, pick your argument. I mean, it's easy to show up at a city council meeting or a community planning meeting and be a voice in opposition to a project. The same folks who talk at cocktail parties about how wonderful it would be for their children and grandchildren to be able to afford to live in their community and buy a house there are the same ones in many cases going to these meetings and opposing projects. So anything that gets ultimately approved, even if it's zoned for that site, it takes us when we were doing development, we stopped several years ago just because of our assessment of where we were in the cycle. It's a three-year process. It, it's three years for a zoned piece of property permitted for you know a multifamily development to actually get the entitlements needed to break ground and construct. That adds an unbelievable level of cost to that housing unit, whether it's a home or a condo or an apartment, when it's ultimately built. Uh, San Diego University did a did a housing study several years ago, and they concluded that 40% of the cost of a new housing unit in the state of California is directly driven by the regulations and the requirements, uh, wh whether it's uh, that you will conduct an environmental in impact study or that you will put solar panels on a new single-family detached home, uh, whatever it is, if if... I think our median housing price in San Diego County is now around $800,000. And if that report's correct, you know, regulation is 300,000 of that, of that total. So we could have more housing. We could have cheaper housing if we simply built more housing. Um, the solution to high housing prices and high rents is more housing. I'll get off my soapbox now.
No, no, no. I appreciate it. I'm tracking with you. What kind of debt are you doing on properties you're acquiring now? We are mostly an agency uh, borrower. So we're borrowing from Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Uh, We tend, again, with our focus on creating a margin of safety, we tend to focus on fixed rate debt and long-term debt. So today our terms are for that in, for the income fund because of its term. So we take the fund vehicle and the strategy around the fund vehicle, that drives the properties we purchase, that drives the construction of the portfolio, that determines the holding periods, which then when, then determines the debt strategy. So we're, we're taking agency debt, seven to 10 year fixed. Typically it's around 60% loan to value going in with the passage of time and the growth of rents, you know, what, that, are the, what, are, what, are, what are the rates approximately these days for well, that kind of debt? As, as I mentioned, our, our current, like three and a half percent. That's the weighted average uh, cost of the loans in the 12 property portfolio. If we go out tomorrow and we buy uh, a 13th property and we are out looking for properties, our borrowing rates going to going to be in the high fours, I would think. I mean, debt rates have definitely moved up. Um, but again, if you bolt on a property or two or three with rates of 4.75 and you blend that with the portfolio uh, and the leverage underlying it that we currently have, it doesn't really move it up all that much. So if you're starting that fund today and you're creating that portfolio in late 22 and 23 and so forth, you're going to have the model for that leverage is going to look fundamentally different than the model of leverage for the fund that we built largely in 20 and 21. Last question for you, and you've you've been eloquent and passionate in your answers. How do you raise equity? Do you have any institutional partners, family office, or is it retail investors, high net worth individuals, et cetera? Yeah, most, most of our investors have been referred by other investors during our time in business. We've Establish relationships with some family offices, with some wealth advisory firms, RIAs, and they've brought in their clients. But it, but it's really very grassroots. It's uh, somebody that has been a, a satisfied investor for many years, and they have a friend or they have a relative, and and it's word of mouth. Um, we've we've managed to keep a pretty low profile while having. Uh, a reasonable level of success. And we're grateful for that. And we're uh, focused on growing at a very controlled pace. So, you know, having a lot of capital, having too much capital certainly um, can be a curse as much as it's a blessing because it forces you to do things that maybe you ought not be doing. So we have made our bones by flying below the radar by doing deals that are too small for the large institutions. That requires a certain amount of capital. But if we had five or 10 times that amount of capital, we couldn't we couldn't play in that strategy. And that strategy's been good for us. So in the last couple of years, what's the average size of the deal that you guys have been taking down and the amount of equity required to, to deploy? We're writing eight to $15 million equity checks on a deal by deal basis. And most of the large institutions, as you know, you know, have trouble getting out of bed for less than a 50 or $100 million equity check. So we we like to think for a lot of what we do, we're, it's a little too big for the small local guy 
a little bit too small, maybe quite a bit too small for the larger institution. And it's a, it's a sweet spot for us. How, how many units approximately? These are all pretty great markets and they're, they're not in, they're not in the middle of nowhere. Or they're not in, uh, you know, Wichita, Kansas. So what's the average size of the deal? These are, we have about 3,000 units today. Uh, I, I think if we set aside a, a small property portfolio that we have in San Diego, that's uh, called Pathfinder Trade Winds that, that has 25 to 50 units per property. Our, our primary Pathfinder uh, assets are around 100 units, but we look for ways to zig where others zag. So a lot of institutions will say, we can't do a deal right. where the checks less than 25 months. We can't buy less than 100 unit property. We won't buy something with a vintage earlier than 1980. So we've got 99 unit properties and 1979 vintage properties and uh, 24 million, you know, whatever it is, we'll, we'll go below the level. Like you said, you're scrappy, man. That's, that, that, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, and in these days, you kind of have to be just because there's so much you do money crawling over such a, such a few amount of uh, uh, deals. Well, Mitch, I know you're uh, kind of not you're kind of underneath the radar ish. But uh, that being said, if someone were so inclined to want to find out more and, and make contact with you, uh, how would they do that? Well, they can go to our website, um, which is pathfinderfunds.com, pathfinderfunds.com. They can uh, request info on the income fund. They can uh, send me an email. My name is Mitch Siegler. It's msiegler at pathfinderfunds.com. Carrier pigeon, you know, FedEx, <laughs> whatever works. In for uh, some of the people that, that are not great spellers in the crowd, this is not Siegler, S-E-E-G-L-I-E-R. No, no, no. This is, this is S-I-G-L-E-R. Just, but, but it's in the show notes. So it's S-I-E-G-L-E-R. That's what I meant to say. I'm so embarrassed. S-I-E. I really did. True. Scout's honor, even though I was never a scout. <laughs> I would have been kicked out of the scouts. They would have never let me in. Mitch, this has been fantastic. I, it really has. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I, I have, have it. And I want to circle back in a year and do it again. And Let's fantastic meeting you. You got it. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Roger. Appreciate you it. You got it. Have a great day.